Good afternoon. It is once again my great pleasure to welcome you to the 34th Annual Belgium Lecture Series. Um, and we will shortly be welcoming our same lecturer um, as we had yesterday, Professor Lynn Rudder Baker. Just another opportunity to reflect a few minutes on the nature of this lecture series. Um, Eunice Belgum graduated from St. Olaf College in 1967. Um, she was one of the most esteemed philosophy majors that uh, the department can recall in our history. Um, the lecture series was established um, after Eunice's tragic death in 1977 um, in the hopes that her death would not be the end of her impact on philosophy. We hope to keep alive the sorts of ideas that Eunice herself held dear and, and sought to understand more and to promote more in her short career. Um, she was particularly interested in ethics, philosophy of mind, and feminism, um, these sets of issues in philosophy. And these lectures seek to continue to investigate things in those areas. We are fortunate that our, our uh, lecturer this year, uh, Professor Baker, is an eminent uh, professor in the philosophy of mind. And we'll say more about that shortly. Um, Eunice received her PhD from Harvard University. Um, her dissertation was on an area of ancient philosophy called acrasia, the weakness of will. Um, when you decide that you are going to do something, you have firmly chosen it, and then it doesn't happen. Um, that moment when you uh, fail to do that which you have chosen to do, and, and a very interesting issue in moral psychology. Um, her dissertation was published posthumously by Garland Publishers. Um, upon leaving Harvard, uh, Eunice went on to teach both at Trinity College and at the College of William and Mary. Um, and as I say, this uh, lecture series seeks to promote and to continue the ideas that she held dear. These lectures are supported by a generous fund that was established by Eunice's family and friends um, in connection with St. Olaf. Um, we are very fortunate today to have um, a member of the Belgum family, Dorothy Belgum Knight, visiting us. If you want to just wave your hands, Dorothy, so that people can say hello to her. And if I just, yes, thank you. Uh, uh, And, and to be able to express publicly our deep gratitude to you and your family for helping us to continue the philosophical tradition that Eunice established. Um, that means a great deal to us. Um, I'm happy now to turn to another member of the philosophy department and a person who has also the virtue of being my husband, Anthony Rudd, to introduce us once again um, to our speaker for the day. Right, thank you. Um, I don't know if it's a virtue being uh, Janine's husband, but it's certainly a pleasure. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm very honored to be able to introduce Lynn Rudder-Baker as our, uh, this year's um, Eunice Belgum lecturer. Um, professor Baker is uh, currently distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, she actually started her career as a mathematician and majored in uh, mathematics at Vanderbilt before seeing the light and transferring to philosophy. Um, <laughs> controversial there, right? Um, she completed her uh, PhD again at, uh, at Vanderbilt and has taught at uh, Middlebury College before uh, moving on to her uh, position at the University of uh, Massachusetts. Um, as Charles Tulliver mentioned in her introduction to her uh, lecture yesterday, she has uh, traveled widely lecturing and uh, contributing to conferences um, in many different countries, 
um, Charles had mentioned encountering her in exotic places like Hong Kong and the holy city of Qum in Iran. Um, I first met her, I think, in um, Hatfield in England, which, believe me, is not at all exotic or glamorous. Um, but she is willing to go um, all sorts of places in the pursuit of philosophical discussion and conversation. Um, she's made important contributions to um, the philosophy of mind, metaphysics, the philosophy of personal identity, uh, philosophy of religion. If I had to just try to summarize very briefly what her overall philosophical sort of project is, the thread that ties all these things together, which is a very rash thing to do, actually, with her sitting here in front of me. Um, but I think I'd say that her, her philosophical project is really to try to um, understand the everyday world we live in philosophically. People often think of philosophy as being, a, for better or worse, a very speculative, remote, esoteric discipline. Um, but I think what Lynn Baker has shown is that we can philosophize um, importantly and interestingly about the world of just everyday world around us, about ourselves, the everyday objects uh, we are surrounded with and interact with. Um, she's the author of uh, five books, the, the earlier ones, Saving Belief and Explaining Attitudes, um, where amongst other things, uh, rigorous and important criticisms of the idea that our everyday common sense psychology could be either boiled down to or even just replaced by um, scientific accounts deriving from neuroscience. Um, her next book, Persons and Bodies, really sets out in detail the uh, constitution view of persons that she was explaining um, yesterday. Um, her more recent books, The Metaphysics of Everyday Life, which sort of sums up that um, project that I was mentioning, and her uh, most recent book, uh, Naturalism and the First Person uh, Perspective, again, going into detail, defending her understanding of uh, persons, what we are, and how we relate to the uh, world around us. Um, but enough of uh, my introduction. She is going to be um, talking on this occasion about uh, how persons persist in time. So, uh, Lynn, over to you. Thank you, Anthony, and thank you again for in inviting me here. This has been a wonderful trip. You have a beautiful campus, wonderful colleagues and students, and it's been a real pleasure for me and my husband, Tom, to be here. So thank you so much. How persons persist in time. Yesterday, I argued against both animalism and mind-body dualism as accounts of human persons. As you no doubt recall, Animalism is the view that persons are essentially animals. Mind-body dualism is the view that persons are or have immaterial souls, essentially. I argued instead for what I call constitutionalism, according to which human persons have two properties, essentially. One, they are constituted by, but not identical to, bodies that can support a first-person perspective. Two, they have first-person perspectives. Those are essential properties of human persons. Persons begin existence with a rudimentary first-person perspective and a remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective, 
Where a first-person perspective is robust, if it enables its bearer to conceive or think of herself as herself in the first person. Today, I want to continue my charting of constitutionalism by laying out a view of how persons persist in time. After I lay out my view, I'll consider three objections. First, an objection to the absence of informative sufficient conditions for personal identity over time. Second, an objection to the first-person character of a material person's persistence conditions. Third, an objection to the coherence of primitive persistence, which my view is an example of. So first, first-person persistence conditions. The question of how persons persist concerns what are technically known as persistence conditions. An entity's persistence conditions are the conditions under which it would continue to exist. The primary kind of an entity determines its persistence conditions. For example, because an oak tree's primary kind is a species of Quercus, and no member of any species of Quercus can continue to exist after being burned up, the oak's persistence conditions include being away from the middle of a raging forest fire. Since an entity has its primary kind essentially, it has its persistence conditions essentially. The fact that an entity has its persistence conditions essentially entails that an entity cannot change its persistence conditions and still be the same entity. A change of persistence conditions is a change of entity. Our pers persistence conditions are determined by the basic kind, the primary kind, of the entities that we are. As we saw yesterday, on my view, our primary kind is person. We are persons most fundamentally. What makes us the kind of beings we are is not what we are made of. What we are made of is not essential to us. It is essential to us human persons that we have bodies that support our first-person perspectives, whether they are organic, inorganic, or even spiritual bodies. But what makes us the kind of thing that we fundamentally are, persons, are our first-person perspectives. If what makes us what we are are our first-person perspectives, and first-person perspectives are dispositional properties, then what keeps us in existence is the continued exemplification of one's first-person perspective. Thus, first-person perspectives furnish persons persistence conditions, and persons' persistence conditions are thus first-personal. But animals' persistence conditions, including those of the animals that constitute us now, are uncontroversially third-personal, biological properties. Indeed, not only animals, but everything else besides persons. Flora and fauna, artifacts, artworks, all, all every other thing has third-personal persistence conditions. As Darwin emphasized, the animal kingdom is a seamless whole, and the persistence conditions of organism are th organisms are third-personal. But any view that takes a person's persistence conditions to be third-personal or biological leaves out, must leave out, what is distinctive about persons, the robust first-person perspective. 
So persons are of a distinct primary kind that has first personal persistence conditions. Your first person perspective is an exemplification of the property first person perspective, a property whose instances cannot be divided or duplicated. So a molecule for molecule replica of your body and brain would not have your first person perspective. Hence, so-called fission problems mercifully do not arise, but we'll see what le about that later. What our robust first-person perspectives gives us, give us is the unity that is missing from physical systems. So here is my view of personal identity over time. A person is a being with a first-person perspective, essentially, who persists as long as her first-person perspective is exemplified. She is born with a first-person perspective and with a remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. She's born with a rudimentary first-person perspective that we talked about yesterday and a remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. What makes me the particular person that I am is the state of affairs of my exemplifying a first-person perspective. Since I have a first-person perspective, essentially, the state of affairs of my exemplifying a first-person perspective is the same state of affairs at all times of my existence. So here is my simple answer to the standard question of personal identity over time. Person X considered at time T is the same person as person Y considered at time T prime if and only if the state of affairs of X's exemplifying a first-person perspective is the same state of affairs as Y's exemplifying a first-person perspective. This account is distinctive in several ways. First, it is metaphysical. It takes persons as such to be basic entities. It does not regard persons as fundamentally non-personal entities, such as organisms or brains, to which we apply a special vocabulary of, first, of person talk. So, as I said yesterday, the difference in level between molecule talk and people talk is not just a difference in level of description, it is a difference in what is being talked about. Second, the account is ineliminably first personal. Persons alone among natural entities have first personal persistence conditions. Third, it does not countenance souls or selves. Persons do not have immaterial parts, no souls, no, no selves that are part of person, parts of persons. This triad of characteristics of persons, being basic entities, first personal, and free of anything material, will strike many philosophers as inconsistent. However, since first person perspectives are dispositional properties, all that follows from the three characteristics is that there are irreducible first-person properties. Such properties furnish persistence conditions for persons. Call any view that, like my view, takes personal identity over time to be, quote, this is quoting Harold Noonan, an ultimate unanalyzable fact for which there are no informative sufficient conditions, a simple view. So my view is a simple view. It takes identity over time, personal identity over time, to be an ultimate unanalyzable fact. 
However, my view differs from other, perhaps more standard, simple views. For example, John Foster uses the term simple view to apply to accounts of persons as non-physical subjects. Quote, this is a quote from Foster. Jones and the non-physical subject to which pain, the pain is attributed in the philosophically fundamental account are one and the same. So according to Foster, Jones is a non-physical subject. My view differs from any simple view that supposes there are non-physical subjects, that there are immaterial substances in the natural world. My view differs from other simple, simple views in other ways as well. Simple viewers who invoke immaterial substances like souls often take personal identity over time to be determinate. That is, for any person P and time T, either P definitely exists at T or definitely does not exist at T. For example, Thomas Reed in the 18th century said that when identity is applied to persons, it, quote, admits not of degrees or of more or less. However, I reject Reedian determinacy. Because I take human beings to be natural objects, I take them to come into existence gradually. I think this follows from the empirical fact, I believe it's an empirical fact, that no concrete object of any kind a natural object or an artifact comes into existence instantaneously. Our solar system took eons to come into existence. Organisms come into existence gradually. Hence, we have good reason to believe that human persons do not come into existence instantaneously. Like everything else, they come into existence gradually. But if persons who are essentially persons come into existence gradually, then there's a time at which their existence is indeterminate. Such indeterminacy is due to vagueness of temporal or spatial boundaries. However, as, I've ar as I argued in the metaphysics of everyday life, indeterminate existence of an entity depends on the uh, determinate existence of that ent entity. It is indeterminate whether some person, if it, sorry, it is indeterminate whether some person P exists at T only if there is some other time, T prime, such that it is determinate that P exists at T prime. Identity is determinate, atemporal, and necessary. The existence of temporal beings like houses and persons is not. Identity is all or nothing. Temporal existence, when an entity is coming into existence, is not. There are indeterminacies in the coming into existence and going out of existence of persons. Even if a person does not go out of existence at death, her earthly body, perhaps gradually, ceases to constitute the person. Let us now turn to objections to my primitive persistence view of personal identity over time. Admittedly, the condition for personal identity over time continuing to exist only if one's first-person perspective continues to be exemplified is not informative inasmuch as there is reference to the person in the condition for persistence over time. A person continues to exist only if 
her first-person perspective continues to be exemplified. I continue to exist only if my first-person perspective continues to be exemplified. The use of expressions, her first-person perspective and my first-person perspective, entails the existence of her and me. So the condition is circular. My reply, and that's an objection, of course, my reply is that the uninformativeness is inevitable in the nature of the case. Not only do we lack non-trivial non necessary and sufficient conditions for transtemporal identity of almost everything, but on my view of persons, it is impossible to have informative sufficient conditions for transtemporal personal identity. Persons are basic entities. Being a person does not consist in satisfying any non-personal conditions. So any correct account of personal identity, identity over time must perforce be uninformative, uninformative. Otherwise, it would be reductive. Now, Peter Van Inwagen has complained that I have given no non-circular informative meaning to the words, quote, X and Y have the same first-person perspective, end quote. What he says is true, but hits no target. X is having the same first-person perspective as Y is too closely tied to X's being the same person as Y to be characterized non-circularly. Any non-circular definition of the expression X and Y have the same first-person perspective must characterize persons in non-personal terms in order to be informative. Such a definition would be reductive. Since I believe that we are not reducible to non-personal or subpersonal items, of course I cannot give a definition of what makes us personal in non-personal terms. Persons are fundamentally different kinds of things from different kinds of beings from anything else in the natural world. If this metaphysical claim is correct, then what I say about human persons does not, cannot, be a non-circular informative definition. For persons, exemplification of a first-person perspective is akin to having an individual essence or hexaity. A person's first-person pr perspective is dispositional and first-personal. An object's individual essence, dispositional or not, is a property such that the object has that property and nothing else has that property. A dispositional essence guarantees that its bearer exists between events that manifest it, such as when I'm sound asleep. Even when I'm sound asleep, I have a first-person perspective, but I'm not manifesting it. Dispositional essences are no strangers in science. They're unobservable theoretical entities that are considered dispositional. Or in everyday life, artifacts are dispositional. Quote, this is a quote from uh, philosopher Stephen Mumford. Thermostats, thermometers, axes, spoons, and batteries have dispositional essences. Our first-person perspectives are exemplifications of a first-personal dispositional property that is a necessary condition for perceiving, acting intentionally, or thinking of oneself as oneself at all. In short, the property of being a person is the property of being an exemplifier of a first-person perspective, essentially, 
where the first-person perspective either is or may become robust. The property of being me is the property of being this exemplifier of a first-person perspective. It is being this exemplifier of a first-person perspective that makes me, me. So the first-person view is a simple view because it provides no informative criteria for personal identity. It provides no informative criteria for personal identity because it takes personhood to be a basic property and not susceptible to a non-personal or subpersonal account. By a basic property, I mean a property that must be mentioned in any complete description of the world, a property that either was exemplified from the beginning of the universe or one whose exemplification is emergent. As I have said, new kinds of phenomena, objects, and properties emerge over time, some by means of natural processes like biological evolution and others by means of human ingenuity, like our, our, our uh, invention of not automobile. The original property base at the Big Bang is not itself sufficient for all the later emergent items and hence the emergence are not reducible to the original base. Plato did not live in a world in which there were properties like being genetically altered corn or being a stock market crash or a nuclear bomb. A full account of reality would include the original base together with emergent items. If the first person perspective is an emergent property, then it cannot be reduced to more basic properties. It belongs in a full account of reality. It is not surprising, then, if I am right, that there are no informative criteria for personal identity over time. To be informative, the criterion of having the first-person perspective at different times would have to be specifiable without using the idea of a person. There seems to be no prospect of doing that. However, rather than being embarrassed by the absence of informative persistence conditions for persons, we should insist upon it. The only alternative is to construe our personal identity over time in non-personal or subpersonal terms. So if you agree with me that we are irreducibly persons, then you too will want to avoid informative persistence conditions. Objection two. First-person persistence conditions. Some philosophers seem to argue as follows. I elicited this argument from Swinburne's book, The Evolution of the Soul. It's, I'm not sure, actually, this is his argument. It's just what his words made me think of. So here's the, here's the, word, the argument I attribute to Swinburne. Premise one, substances are individuated by the stuff they are made of. That's almost a quote from Swinburne. Premise two, molecules are not first-personal, and substances that are made of molecules cannot have first-person persistence conditions. Premise three, on Baker's view, persons are substances made of molecules. Therefore, conclusion, on Baker's view, persons cannot have first-person pers persistence conditions. Now, this is back to me talking. Well, I was talking anyway, but... Although I agree that persons are substances made of molecules, I adamantly oppose the general view that substances are individuated by the stuff they are made of. 
Many substances are individuated by their functions, by what they can or were designed to do. Think of automobiles, or as I said yesterday, clocks. If persons are material, as I think, but Swinburne doesn't, they could not survive resurrection or biotechnological bodily replacements if they were individuated by what they are made of. A change in what they are made of would be a change of substance. Indeed, Swinburne may think that persons do have first-person persistence conditions, but only because he thinks that persons have immaterial souls made of immaterial soul stuff. Swinburne may take the argument I put in his mouth to be an argument against materialism, but my argument is aimed not at materialism, but at the general claim that substances are individuated by the stuff they are made of. Since first-person persistence conditions of persons are, are exemplifications of a property essential to being a person, it is irrelevant whether the person is made of molecules or of something else, as long as her body can support a first-person perspective. So the argument that I made up for Swinburne is unsound. Again, this may not be his argument, but it's an argument that his, his words suggested to me. Objection three, coherence of primitive persistence. This is the hardest one. This is a really a tough one, I think. Any simple view, like mine, is one of primitive persistence. That is, there are no informative sufficient conditions for the persistence of a person. Michael Della Rocca has argued that primitive persistence is incoherent. Its incoherence is supposed to follow from its incompatibility with what Della Rocca calls Parfit's Plausible Principle, or PPP. That's what he calls it, PPP. That's after Derek Parfit, famous philosopher, um, of metaphysician and philosopher of mind. PPP is a Parfitian principle that can be generated by a thought experiment. This is the basis for PPP. PPP just sounds, it's almost impossible to understand. I mean, that, that is to hear and catch on to. But, but here's a thought experiment that, that underlies PPP. If A's brain, A is a person, if A's brain were split into two qualitatively similar halves, which were then transplanted into two bodies, there would be two resulting people, B and C, with exactly the same relation to A. In that case, since B and C are not identical to each other, because they're different bodies, A cannot be identical to both B and C. And since A is related in exactly the same way to B and to C, A cannot be either identical to B and not to C, or identical to C and not to B. The scenario of A's having two successors, B and C, with exactly the same relation to A, is a philosopher's fantasy called fission. Now we can formulate PPP as a principle that underlies fission fantasies. You can tell I do not believe in fission, but this is what the, this that thought experiment underlies this principle, PPP. Here's PPP, and it's on your handout to help, help you sort of see what this is. I'm, I'll read it. This is what's on your handout. In a case in which there are objects A, B, and C, where B is not identical to C, 
and B and C are equally and significantly causally and qualitatively continuous with A, and there is no other object besides A which exists at the same time as A and which is such that B and C are as causally and qualitatively continuous with it as they are with A, then it cannot then, it cannot be the case that A is identical to B and not to C, and it cannot be the case that A is not identical to B and is identical to C. End of, end of the principle, PPP. De La Roca's claim is that Parfit's plausible principle, PPP, is, quote, an extraordinarily plausible principle, end quote. As you can tell from my tone of voice, I'm going to deny that. <laughs> he cites a raft of dis disparate philosophers who endorse it. Then he claims that the conjunction of PPP and primitive persistence is incoherent. And given the overwhelming plausibility of PPP, he says that primitive persistence must go. His larger point is that three-dimensionalism is committed to primitive persistence, and hence three-dimensionalism is incoherent. I'm, I'm a three-dimensionalist. Let me reply. Consider a, a, consider a formulation of my view, which I'll call FPP. That's on your handout, too. This is my view, FPP. This is, going, this is a primitive persistence view. If y, X and Y are persons who exist at, sorry, if X and Y are persons who exist at T1 and T2 respectively, then X is identical to Y if and only if X is exemplifying a first-person perspective at T1 is the same state of affairs as Y is exemplifying a first-person perspective at T2. I agree that my view, FPP, is a three-dimensionalist view and is committed to primitive persistence, but of course I don't agree that it's incoherent. If Della Roca is correct that primitive persistence is incompatible with PPP, then my view, FPP, is also incompatible with PPP. However, incompatibility of FPP and PPP only implies that both cannot be true. It is mute about which one is false. Is there a positive argument for PPP that does not just appeal to the presumed incoherence of primitive persistence or to the authority of PPP's adherence, as Della Roca's <coughs> discussion does? The closest that Della Roca comes to a positive argument for PPP is to say that violations of PPP would be arbitrary. Quote, this is a quote from Della Roca. In insisting on PPP, one claims that it cannot be that A is identical to B, say, and not identical to C. And th this is so because, and he emphasizes because, he italicizes because, because such identity and non-identity would be arbitrary, primitive. <clears throat> I'll pass over Della Roca's claim that identity of A with B or C would be ungrounded in fission cases, since the claim of groundlessness clearly begs the question against primitive uh, persistence views. The point of primitive persistence views is that there is nothing deeper in which to ground personal identity over time, so it's hardly legitimate to complain that primitive persistence would leave identity ungrounded. In any case, Della Roca simply denies that persistence can be primitive, 
by saying that such identity over time would be arbitrary. The only argument that Della Roca advances in favor of PPP, other than appealing to the authority of other philosophers, is that denying PPP would be arbitrary. But note that ar the arbitrariness objection does not support PPP over primitive persistence. PPP says of a state of affairs, <coughs> excuse me, that it cannot be the case. But arbitrariness does not bear on what cannot be the case. Arbitrariness may give reason to believe that something is or is not the case. Arbitrariness is an epistemic matter, but PPP is a metaphysical, not an epistemic matter. Indeed, I would have no quarrel with an epistemic version of PPP that had the same antecedent as PPP, but the following is a consequent. I'll read you the PPP with the antecedent and what would be my, my acceptable consequent. The antecedent is, in a case in which there are objects A, B, and C, where B is not identical to C, and B and C are equally and significantly causally and qualitatively continuous with A, and blah, 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 then we would have no reason to believe or claim that A is identical with B and not C, and we would have no reason to believe or claim that A is not identical to B and is identical to C. Call this the epistemic version of PPP. Now, that is my epistemic version is that we wouldn't have any reason to believe that A is identical to B and not C, or, and no reason to believe that A is identical to C and not B, but that's not the same as saying it cannot be the case that. Those are completely different ideas. That cannot be the case that is metaphysical, there's no reason to believe, is epistemic. There are two advantages of the epistemic principle over PPP. One, since arbitrariness does not concern what must be or cannot be the case, but rather concerns what we have reason to believe is or is not the case, the arbitrariness objection supports the epistemic principle better than it supports PPP. Two, whereas PPP implies the falsity, if not the incoherence of primitive persistence views like FPP, the epistemic principle is compatible with primitive persistence and with FPP. If we combine the, the epistemic principle with my primitive persistence view, FPP, we get the following conclusion. If fission were possible, then there would be a fact of the matter as to which one, if any, of A's fission products is A, without anyone's being able to know what that fact is. There would be a true disjunction. Either A is identical to B and not C, or A is identical to C and not B, or A goes out of existence altogether. FPP gives a reason to believe the disjunction, all those three disjuncts, without giving any reason to believe any one of the disjuncts, which one is true. That result is perfectly coherent. In light of these advantages of the epistemic principle over PPP, there seems to be good reason to prefer the epistemic principle over PPP and to accept primitive persistence. In any case, I do not believe that Della Roca or Parfit has given us any independent reason, any reason independent of what each is trying to prove, to reject primitive persistence or to endorse PPP. 
The upshot is that if we have no independent reason to accept PPP, then we have no reason to accept Parfit's over my view of personal identity over time. So why do so many philosophers seem to endorse PPP? If you read Della Roca's article in the Journal of Philosophy, he just goes through this huge battery of, of, um, of contemporary philosophers almost on all sides of the spectrum who seem to endorse PPP. So why do they? Perhaps they don't realize that the arbitrariness objection supports only an epistemic principle. Let me venture a more profound reason, at least in the case of personal identity. PPP, which has the consequence that, quote, there is no difference between objects without a qualitative difference, that's De La Rocco again, sets a path for the reduction of persons to subpersonal elements as we see in Parfit's own psychological continuity criterion of personal identity over time. By contrast, FPP, along with primitive persistence, opens a way to a non-reductive view that takes human beings to be ontologically significant entities without any immaterial parts. I suspect that how one decides between PPP and primitive persistence depends in large measure on one's reductive or non-reductive pro proclivities. In any case, I do not believe that Della Roca's argument threatens my view of personal identity in any non-question-begging way. If I am right about the persistence conditions of persons, then there is a stunning consequence. If persons persist in time in the way that I say, then there are irreducibly first-person properties exemplified in the world, and thus reality fundamentally has a first-person aspect. Thank you. Identified by our, our 
reduce, I'm not, I, I really, as I said to Mike, I think yesterday, um, I, I don't, I'm not, I, I have not, I have not really paid much attention to this, that the whole debate, the Chalmers debate, the hard problem of consciousness, the phenomenalism bit. Um, I, I agree, consciousness is a phenomenal, I mean, it has a phenomenal aspect. As I said yesterday, I think that it, the consciousness is a matter of having something present to us, and that is, that is just, I think, not analyzable in any other term. But that doesn't mean that having some, the property of having something present to you, is, there's no dualism there. In fact, if there were, there would be Jillianism there. That is, that we have, there, there are, as I was saying to Janine yesterday, every primary kind is gonna bring in a new kind of property that wasn't there before. Molecules over atoms, even. So atoms scattered about, this is yesterday's example, atoms scattered about the universe wouldn't be molecules. Molecules have to be atoms bonded, or that is to say some like a, a salt molecule has to be, or water molecule has to be uh, hydrogen and oxygen atoms bonded, or hydrogen molecule and oxygen atoms bonded, bonded in order to have a water molecule. So a water molecule cannot be understood just as hydrogen and oxygen, because if you had hydrogen over here, oxygen over there, you wouldn't have water molecules. So they're not identical, they cannot be identified in terms of just the components. So uh, that's actually one of the things, I, uh, as, as I said as I said yesterday and I said today, one of my basic commitments is non-reductivism. Non-reductionism, and that has to do with this everyday life stuff that Anthony was talking about. This is not, when we, when we see each other, I'm looking at a bunch of people in an auditorium who are, who are thinking about philosophy, and that there's not, and there's, that's what you are. I mean, that's what I think you are anyway. What I don't think you are, essentially, is, is just a bunch of molecules out there shaped, shaped like this and so on. That, that seems to me just wrong-headed. What, what, what I'm interested in is the world, in, in the terms we interact with it. So the world, and that includes myself, the, the world that we interact with is the world of people, the world of auditorium, the world of auditoriums, whatever the plural of auditorium is, the world of um, lectures, the world of philosophy, the world of the world we live in. That's what I'm interested in, and that's what I'm interested in talking about philosophically, and I don't think that's reductive, and I don't think that means I'm a dualist of any sort. So, no, that wasn't quite as successful. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, uh, Professor Mike. Oh. Um, yes, I was wondering, uh, follow up, uh, sorry, to, to follow up on this question about irreducibility. Um, does, does irreducibility imply that we also can't, on, on your view, that we, we can't um, figure out what has that you're talking about, in other words, so the question is how do we tell what has a first person perspective and what doesn't? Are there, oh. are there constraints, like rational constraints on how we deploy the idea? Is it, is it a social convention? How, how do we mm -mm. work with things that are- I don't think it's a social convention. I, oh, I guess I'll, oh, I didn't, this, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I guess this, I turned this off in some way. I'm sorry, um, uh, but I can hear now that I'm, now, yes, um, um, <laughs> I don't think it's a social convention. I think we are 
I think we are all, also, I mean, there are a lot of, we have other essential properties besides the two I mentioned. One is we're social. We're social animals, I think. I mean, we're constituted by social animals. And at least we begin existence constituted by social animals. And how we know that each ha we have first-person perspectives, how we know that we have first rudimentary first-person perspectives is the same way we know a dog does. A dog exhibits intentional behavior, responds to the world in, in, uh, in um, uh, appropriate ways, usually, sometimes, um, uh, and so we know that so we have evidence that a dog has rudimentary first, a rudimentary first-person perspective and that a baby does. There are a lot of experiments about babies and how they respond to looming figures or how they respond to smiles or sticking out your tongue. Or they, uh, they, they imitate, they respond in ways that, that are just evidence of intentional behavior and also evidence of consciousness. So they have rudimentary first-person perspectives. How we know we have robust first-person perspectives is that you tell me, you tell me something like, gee, I wish I were a movie star. Well, you say that. I know that just guarantees that you have a robust first-person perspective. Because I, if I wish I were a movie star, it doesn't matter who I am, I wish I were a movie star. That is, it's the first person, it's the, it's, an it's a manifestation of my robust first-person perspective. So we have plenty of evidence for first-person perspectives, and, and I think they're, they're, that's what I'm, that's it. And does that enable us to make, um, do we have evidence that someone is the same person over time? We have plenty of evidence for that, but we don't have a criterion for that. We don't have a metaphysical, we can't say, you're the same person as, I saw there yesterday, up here yesterday, um, if and only if, and I can fill it out non-circularly. I can fill it out with, by saying, you're, you're, you're the exemplifier of the same first-person perspective, but that is hardly interesting or helpful. So, so there's not, I think we don't have criteria for um, sameness of person over time, but I think we have plenty of evidence. You look the same to me. You're talking the same way. You, um, uh, you're not sitting in the same place, but that's okay. I still, I mean, I could tell you're Mike. Um, uh, so it seems to me that I have plenty of, I have evidence for the same person, sameness of person over time, but none of this is infallible. That's, I'm not Cartesian. I don't think we have any, almost anything, any infallible or any guarantee or absolute certainty. I just think, but I think it's a good guess that you're Mike. The same mic it was who was there. Personal worry, Mike. Uh, <laughs> I want to be Professor Barber, and then we'll move on to questions. And I'll try to be quicker. No, you're doing fine. I want to build on that question. The question of identity in any future mic, if you'd be willing to speculate on that, we don't have an immortal soul which is transferred to some other realm. We have to have a future body, you said yesterday. Right. Like Paul, Paul yeah. yeah. Right. First Corinthians 50. How do we oh, no, 15. 50. 15. 50. Almost total discontinuity. Right. In, in it could almost be. Almost everything. Right. But with the exception of first person identity, it does get continued. So you know it's the same person. Right. I think that. I think that's a really that's really a deep question. But let me let me try to answer it. 
Um, first of all, I think if there is any afterlife, it has to be a miraculous thing. It couldn't be like Plato's soul that just goes on naturally. It has to be a miracle done by God if, if, you, live, if you live later, after you die. And, and you have to have a, some body that will support your first-person perspective. But what makes that person you is that, is that um, it, you're, the reason I don't have, the reason I have no um, su informative sufficient conditions or a reason is that what makes that person you is not anything informative about you, it is that you exemplify, you are that exemplifier of a first person perspective. Now, I think one, one thing where I guess I should, I should think about this more is that what are the persistence conditions for exemplification? That's what, that's what, so how can I say that you continue to be that exemplifier? Well, first of all, there's no, there's, God doesn't have to put together a body or you and that first person perspective because you carry that first person perspective with you. That is you, that's part, that's your, that's an essential to you is that you exemplify that first person perspective. What God does is decide that, okay, you can have this body rather than that body. That's okay. I mean, still a miracle, of course. <laughs> um, um, but that, that you are, you exemplify, there's no way to separate you and your first person perspective. There's just no, there's not any separation there. So, so how God does it, I have no, if he does it, I have no idea. But it, it has to be a miracle, I think, and I think that, um, that the Constitution view is good because it doesn't make the body you have now essential to you, uh, or a body, or even a, f a former stage of the body you have now essential to you. So your body could be burned up and you still are, you still could be resurrected with a new spiritual body. Because for all I, I don't know, for, for all I know about exemplification, as long as you're, as long as you're, your first person perspective, you are, as long as your first person perspective it continues to be exemplified or is exemplified, then you are there. That sounds like a functional equivalent of the soul. It does? Uh, Well, I think I think actually God is an immaterial God. being. Myself, I mean, I, the, so all uh, my whole materialism idea is concerns the natural world. I think the natural world is totally material. In fact, I think it makes better sense of the incarnation to say that too. The natural world is totally material. And if there is an, 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 another world, then it might be totally immaterial and spiritual bodies, for all we know, could be, I don't I mean, who knows? That we, I mean, that, I think that's a big mystery, uh, what a spiritual body might be. Uh, it's probably not, it's not a flesh and blood body. We know that, that's all we know. So I, uh, I'm willing to say, this, lead, this what, I think I've, what I think my view does is, open space, logical space for God to miraculously um, raise anybody he wanted to, to with a resurrection body. But that doesn't explain anything about resurrection, nor is it, an, uh, nor is it a, um, um, 
nor is it a, a, an argument for resurrection. It's just saying there's logical space so that if God exists and if he wanted to resurrect you, he could do it without violating any, any logical or metaphysical principle. Thank you very much for coming to speak to us today. Um, I, I'm a little confused by your theory that something's existence depends upon its... Um, so could you speak up? Sorry. I'm a little confused about your theory of uh, something's existence or someone's existence as a person depending upon them meeting certain persi persistence conditions. Um, it seems to me like other people have to judge whether those persistence conditions are actually met. So it seems like in order for, in, in order for me to exist, other people have to judge that I'm a person. No, I don't want to say that at all. However, I don't think that you could be the only person in the universe. Uh, I don't think you could be, I don't, I don't think you could, uh, I, th I think we are essentially social, so I think we do have, we do exist um, socially with other people, but I don't think that there is other people are required to affirm your existence. You could still exist even if nobody affirmed your existence, even if somebody thought you didn't exist. I don't think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't see, I don't quite see why you thought I would think that you had, I had to, I thought that somebody else has to affirm your existence. I guess I don't see the question. Mm, I'm not sure how to, how to phrase it differently right now. But it's not conventional. I don't think it's conventional. I think this is, we're talking about, I think we're talking, I mean, I'm trying to talk about reality here. And reality is that you exist, you with your first person perspective. Yeah, my question was actually similar to his. I think that uh, the idea that a person is constituted essentially as a perspective makes a lot of sense, but I guess I don't know why the robustness necessarily has to come from a first-person perspective, kind of following on his question, and I wonder if robustness could actually, arri could actually arise as a result of a, almost, you could say, a second-person perspective. Oh. Thinking about the, uh, the Hitchcock film Vertigo, where uh, the protagonist's love interest quickly dies, and then shortly later in the film, another femme fatale appears on the scene, who in almost every way is just like molecularly the same woman that he loved. She even feels, and her perspective almost takes on the identity of his previous love interest. But it's only when, it's because he can't bring himself to love another person that she realizes that she's not who she thinks she is or she cannot replace that other woman. So I feel like in a way, there is almost a stronger robustness that we get from another person about our own identity than we can actually formulate from inside ourselves. I really don't know what to say to that. Um, right, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, um, uh, I don't think that he, she could have had a first-person perspective if she didn't have a self-concept that she, in a language, uh, period. I mean, so, but, and I think that you cannot get a self-concept in, in a language 
in isolation. As I said yesterday, that's sort of my Wittgensteinian side. And I think that requires a social, a, a linguistic community. Um, uh, actually, I think there are interesting questions about the second person perspective. And I haven't really, I've just talked about first and third, but I think second does bring up interesting, uh, interesting questions that I really don't know how to handle at this moment. If, there, if there's somebody else, then I'm wrong. Okay. That's all. I mean, if, you know, uh, it, it, so I'm not, but I think that we are the only things on Earth, but maybe there are Martians who have first-person perspectives. Because I feel like the, in, the, um, the inability of, uh, of us to understand the languages, the, the presumably less developed languages of other, um, of other species would make it pretty impossible for us to tell what Um, it, it just seems, seems to me that we have such different causal powers from dolphins, from whales, from anything else, chimpanzees, our causal powers are so hugely different and so huge that I just don't see, it, 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 to me it's just intuitive to think that we are different. But it's not just intuitive because I think our causal powers give us reasons to think that we are not just like the other uh, 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 the other animals. I've got um, uh, three or uh, four questions with you, sir, and then we'll move back to the other. A whole lot of philosophers um, ended up being dualists. A whole lot of them took real seriously the mind body mm -hmm. problem. Uh, do you have an opinion? About what mistake they yes. made or what yes. they were unable to escape to the end of First of all, it, it is basically the Cartesian fallacy. The, the idea that there's, a, there's the in here and there's out there. There's the external world. And my big question is, if I'm Descartes, my question is, how can I be sure that you're really out there? I can be sure that I'm really in here, but how can I be sure that you're out there? I think that's just a fallacy to start with, and I think what the first thing we should try to do is get over that fallacy, get over the idea of an intern this internal external bit that you get out of Descartes. I said what? End of your statement, you said what you were interested. I want to find out about the world. Yeah, but I'm part of the world. No, no, I'm not thinking that there's the. I'm not asking about is there a world out there. There's not. I don't talk like that. I'm. I'm part of this. You're part of this. We're all in this together, and we're in this, and we are, and we have a, these unique powers, causal powers, including the power to think about ourselves in the first person. But that's not it. That's not anything, sort of. Mm, that's not anything as opposed to the the world. I mean, I'm in the world. It's me too, and it's me in my first person perspective. You in your first person perspective, and we we start out. We, in fact, this seems to me pretty Darwinian. We start out in the world. We start out responding to our environment. We. St I mean, we don't ever start out. We don't start out in in some kind of mystical internal space, we, we start out in the world. 
And then we, and then we develop, uh, finally, a robust first-person perspective in which we can then develop an inner life. I say inner life, maybe I shouldn't even use that term, but we, we develop the kind of life we report in our memoirs and in our diaries. Um, um, but it's not, it's not I, I don't want to be Cartesian in any way. Uh, uh, so I think that, I think the man-body dualism is a Cartesian mistake. But now I know there are dualists in this room. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to say one thing. <laughs> is, um, while I prefer not to use the word dualism because, uh, first of all, it's a 19th century term. It was invented to describe Zoroastrianism. Descartes oh. never said, I'm a dualist. Plato never did. So the term I would prefer would be pluralism. And I, I, I'm, I'm a pluralist. Very, thank you. This is very afternoon. <laughs> but I would like to, uh, if you do challenge um, this and you should make sure she gets the spelling right because when you criticized me in the book uh, on bodies, uh, yeah, you misspelled my name. I did. Just make sure the spelling. Uh, I, but it's such I, a great job. It's a fabulous book. Gee, I, I, I have to say, I, I apologize. I, I humbly apologize. I No, I wouldn't say that because I don't think it. I think we are like. Let me see if I, um, a document, say, or, or, uh, a, a, or a. Um, I just I can only think. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of perjury. What makes something perjury? If you you commit perjury, what makes something perjury is not anything that has to do with your body. Not just your body, anyway. It's not. It's, it has to be. What makes something perjury? What you commit perjury only if you say something that you know to be false under circumstances where you swore you'd tell the truth, um, and so that. But that has nothing to do with the organization of your body. That has to do with something else. Well, I think that's true in with persons too. In, uh, the first-person perspective is supported, no doubt, by brains. I mean, I'm not. You know, I do live in the 21st century. Um, uh, so supported, no doubt, by brains. But the first-person perspective is not the subject of the matter of the first-person perspective isn't anything that has to do with molecular organization or arrangement of particles. It is, it is the first-person perspective is a, um, is a dispositional property, and it's not a dispositional property that can be understood in terms of neurons. I think. Okay, Mr. Prime Minister, and then um, So you said that X and Y, uh, or X is identical to Y, it's only in X's exemplifying first-person perspective at T1 is the same state of affairs as Y's exemplifying first-person perspective at T2. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious what you have to say about, uh, say, person X is uh, the infant 
person Y is that the same state of affairs is it's the same exemplification of the first person perspective because it's the same person. Now that's circular, I see, that's circular. But that's, that, was what, that was the first problem I, th I tried to deal with, was the circularity problem, and I don't think there's any way out. Uh, so, I, so I think that's, as I said, in the nature of the case that it's circular. Am I right in thinking that, on your view, uh, the first person perspective is a property laden phase that most human animals go through starting sometimes after they begin as an organism? No, not before, after they begin. After, there's no, you were never an organism that wasn't a person. You are not. There was an organism that, uh, that was not a person, and then it, but you didn't exist then. You didn't exist until that ar organism came to constitute well, you. I didn't say I existed. I said I, I started as a phase that that human organism. Uh, oh. Um, phase that the human uh, organism goes through. Okay. Uh, I, think, I think I see what you're saying, and I yeah, think. Mm -hmm. uh, can become magnetized mm -hmm. and demagnetized. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's property-laden, uh, emergent property of this bar uh, of iron, right? Okay. Here's, what I th here's a place that I think is a wrinkle in my theory, and that may be what you're getting at. When, whereas, uh, say, a, a fetal pig can acquire a rudimentary first-person perspective and the fetal pig just require, acquires the rudimentary first-person perspective, and that's that. It's a contingent property of the fetal pig. But if it's a human animal, a human organism, a human fetus, then I, I think when it, when, at the moment, at the, if, if there's not an instant, but at the time or at the, some interval, when it acquires a first-person perspective, it, as it were, passes it off to the person it comes to constitute. And when I, I mean passes it off is obviously um, is obviously a metaphor. But what I'm but but then I can say sort of more theoretically. Then the organ the the since the the constitution relation is a tight relation, it's a unity relation, but not identity. So you are constituted by this animal, and you now have this first person perspective. I would say rudimentary first-person perspective non-derivatively, and the animal has it derivatively because you take precedence, sort of ontological precedence over the animal. Whereas, if you, if you were a, a fetal pig, there's nothing, there's nothing other than the pig in its first-person perspective. But in the case of a human animal or fetus, uh, whether it's been born or not, I don't know, but a human, a young human thing, that um, at the time, when it, when it acquires a first-person perspective, a rudimentary first-person perspective, it doesn't just keep it, it, it so to speak. It, then there's this new thing, and the new thing has it non-derivatively, and the, and the animal has it derivatively. So, but so that's why I say passes it off. I don't know a better way to put it than that. Yeah, but that I agree is a wrinkle. It's a wrinkle I have because I'll tell you why I have it, because I don't want to I don't want to put off personhood until the until a, a child can pass the false belief test or something. I don't 
I don't want to say, ah, that's when the thing becomes a person. That's when it used to be an animal, now it's a person. No, I don't want to say that. I want to say, I want personhood to be, the onset of personhood to be uh, earlier than that around birth or maybe a little before. No, I so don't. All the multiple Absolutely, no. All those are just disorders, all of them disorders. And, and but there's only one first person. Yep, and you and you have to go to get a lot of therapy, and then if with any with any good with good therapy, one of them wins out, and that's the one you are. Yeah, I've got four. Four people. And, uh, we'll get to you just a second. I'm going in order here. Okay. Um, I've been finding this conversation helpful. The, the, the Right. It's a substance, and, and the, prop, the property design right. is. It would be very easy if it were the case, which I know is not the case for you, but it would be very easy if the property resided in the animal body. Um, you know, the, 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 the animal body carries the property, and so right. now I know where the property is and how and where it's exemplified. You're not saying that. Right. Correct? So I'm trying to understand when, when the property is exemplified, what is exemplified? The person, the, the person is exemplifying. And the person is itself a material object because it's constituted by a material object. That's my idea of materialism. Now, that's not everybody's idea of materialism. But since the body, your, your body and you are made up of exactly the same cells and, ex and exactly the same molecules at every moment, then that, that makes for a kind of unity, even though you're not identical to your body, there's a kind of unity, and the first-person perspective, I think, is what secures the unity of you, the person, and you, the person with your body. Right. So, so it's the person, not the body, that is exemplifying the... The first-person perspective, yes, at least non-derivatively. Uh, that is, I have this sort of a, a, a big distinction between derivatively, a derivative exemplification and non-derivative exemplification, so that you are... Uh, for person properties, you exemplify them non-derivatively, but you are derivatively. You have the property of um, being hungry, say, or um, is that I think, or having long toenails. Uh, okay, I think we have the four, we have the room so far, and I, I see four questions. I think uh, Corliss. Oh, I can wait. Okay, would you like to go ahead? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I'll admit that I came in a bit late, so I risk not making sense with my question. Um, but I'm wondering about whether there is room, um, in your view, for like a, a sort of extreme collectivist view or like an extreme interdependent view of the self, where rather than having sort of a firm line around, around yourself that you have your relationships with other people are an intrinsic part of your conception of yourself and like you see yourself as maybe part of a greater organism where your environment and the people around you are actually part of you and whether that first person um, 
perspective gets jostled in some way so that it's like an all person's perspective instead? Um, I don't think that, but I think somebody like Mark Johnston, who wrote two really interesting and I would say disturbing books, one called Saving God and one saying, uh, called Surviving Death, it was in Surviving Death, he takes, he takes it the, that you're, as long as you think of yourself as yourself, as what, that's what I think you do, I mean, I'm not saying that you, you, you elevate yourself excuse me, over other people, but I think that's what you do. He says what you should do is identify yourself with humanity, personality generally, not my personality, but personality. And if you do that, he takes that to be like agape, that, uh, that we, if you can identify yourself with the onrush, as John Stuart Mill said, the onrush of mankind or humankind, the onrush of humankind. Identify yourself with just arbitrarily every other person, including persons who come after you. That's what you should do, and that's how you survive death. Although there's not going to be any, your personality goes. It's not going to, your personality won't survive death. But the onrush of humanity will, survives your death, and therefore um, that's what you should aim for. Um, but I don't think that, nope. The account of full reality, I think, will have to include all objects, kinds, and properties that are not reducible to something else and are not eliminable from what we need to, to have our lives the way we know our lives are. So as long as you can't eliminate or reduce a property, it belongs in the full account. So that's what I think. But I think. Oh yes, just an inventory, an inventory, yeah. But the, but it's an inventory. Once you've got all the kinds and properties and objects, you've got. I mean, it's a list of everything. But but suppose you think um, uh, I don't let's see. I and I don't think things like intentional objects like Macbeth's dagger. I don't think that's going to be on the list. I think it's going to be, I think that's not, I don't know what to do with that, but I wouldn't put it on the list. But mom's Easter hat might not be on the list Your, your what? My mother's hat, Easter hat, might not be on your the list Your mother's hat. No, it might not. 
Santa Claus is definitely not on the list. Santa Claus is definitely not on the list. Why did my mom's Easter bonnet get off the list? Maybe because it, okay, if you're if if an Easter bonnet is a primary kind, and I'm not in, in any position to tell you exactly what the primary kinds are, but if it is a primary kind, Easter bonnet is a primary kind distinct from chapeau or um, you know or a hat um, th then then your mother's Easter bonnet would be an instance of that primary kind and would be on the list but if it's not a primary kind then there's probably something else that is a primary kind that it is it is an example of and it would might get on the list that way um, that uh, Maybe. Okay, we will end at five, but we have at least two questions here. I'm tempted to jump in myself, but let's just go with Jennifer. Yeah, thank you so much for coming to Minnesota. Yeah, just thank you for coming to Minnesota. I'm really interested in your interpretation of the First Corinthians 15. Of what? First the First Corinthians 15, 50 verse. First Corinthians 15. Oh, yeah. 15, yeah. Yeah, huh. Um, <laughs> Oops. I'm just wondering, what's your I think it's all material. Also, I think the speaking of creation, I'll tell you, let me tell you my view of creation. My view of creation is that God created the world, and it may have created it via natural selection, for all I know. It may have started out with just molecules, just the Big Bang, and then, uh, and then molecule, um, atoms, molecules, uh, and so on, then bacteria, then self-replicating self organisms, then blah, 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 blah. But when God created the world, what he created, I think, was this world, the world that we know. That is, the world with us in it. That is, I don't mean he created it at the moment. He created the rest of the world. But I mean, the point of creation is going to be the world of ordinary people, medium-sized objects. Is, J.L. Austin said, medium-sized dry goods, the world, the, world of, the world that we interact with, us and the world that we interact with, and the animals, all, all, that, that was the point, I'm not, I think, if there's such a thing as create, if God created the world, I think that that's what he was creating, even if he started out with a big bang and then the, you know, and finally bacteria and then so on. Um, even if it went through that, process of billions of years to get there, what he was aiming for was this world, the world we interact with. Yeah, my question was more about like the actual like materialness of the material. And it's all so, material. So uh, it's material example, in my sense of material. That is, it's all constituted by things that were, uh, maybe came out of the Big Bang. Constituted by, but that doesn't mean that that's all there is because there are all these emergent properties all along the way. And from that view, then, like, angels are made up based on... Oh, angels. Oh, yeah. angels. Oh, then, I don't know then, what to say then, about angels. I'm sorry. I just don't know. Great. I just... You don't have to answer it. I just... Oh, good. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, don't know what to say about angels. Yeah, yeah, Some of my best friends 
believe in angels, but. You can see me in office hours. And we can <laughs> <laughs> no, I am, I'm serious. Uh, yeah, I was going to defer to you, and since it's Charles, I think my. Well, yes. Okay. Okay. Okay, all right. I'll, I don't. Oh, okay. I was going to ask something on the side, but I'm going to defend. Uh, the Cartesian perspective, even though I'm more in the Platonic tradition, which might even be worse. But I don't see. I, <laughs> but I do think it's, it, it's a caricature um, of the history of what people call dualism, to think that they begin, as it were, in here, and so on. I think that what all of us have done, from Plato to Augustine and Descartes and to the contemporaries, is we're pretty certain that persons exist and experience exists, consciousness exists, we're aware of things, scientists exist, philosophers exist, and then it's a further claim uh, that's made by people from Democritus to Daniel Dennett that all of this stuff, uh, as we're our thinking, feeling, and so on, pales in comparison with the precision that we have of what it is to be a material object, and we're actually <laughs> identical. You do? Well, I mean, don't you think that, uh, it sounds to me as if this is a, this, you're making a distinction between primary and secondary qualities. I mean, your early modern distinction. So you have primary qualities of, that are quantitative, mathematical, and then you have smells and bells. And I'm, I'm not so much making that as a, a distinction as much as I'm raising that for us, like for some philosophers today, like Galen Strassen and Noam Chomsky, uh, and actually Russell at one point, who claimed that we really lack a clear con concept of what it is to be a physical object. And so we're coming not from the standpoint of, I understand what immaterial stuff is, and I know what material stuff is. Where is the soul, or where am I? We don't approach it that way. We just we approach it from the standpoint of what we are certain of, and we are thereby actually denying an identity rather than affirming there are only two kinds of things. That's interesting. I, well, it seems to me that we're not, uh, um, I, I don't, start with certainty about anything, period. That I don't start with certainty. I start with, I mean, it, I don't mean to sound too much like a, a scientific naturalist, but I do start with what seems to me to be evidence. And the evidence can be first personal, evidence can be third personal, evidence is going to be evidence. I think evidence is going to include just ordinary things, ordinary evidence, not just stuff that's set up in a laboratory, but stuff like I have evidence that you're sitting before me. Right this minute, I have evidence. That's, so that's where I start. That, that's excellent. And I, oh, us, good. And we will, um, 
we will enjoy the, the golden union of our souls as we proceed <laughs> to think more about the world. But we, it is evident we've been a great pleasure of your company. Oh, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Charles. That was really nice.